the gospel comes with a house key. God loves us and he welcomes us into his presence. He says to sinners, really bad sinners like you and me, mi casa es su casa. In the gospel, Jesus comes to you and he says, here's a key to my house. Here's the key to the front door. You are welcome anytime. Make yourself at home. And he doesn't just leave a key under the mat and tell you to come look for it. He actually gives you his own personal key, your own personal key to his house, to his presence, where you can feed on Christ by faith and feast and eat to your heart's content. And so God comes to us today, as he does every Sabbath, and through the Holy Spirit, he says once again to us, and some of you need to hear this right at the very beginning of the sermon, he says this to us, your guilt and your shame is taken away. There is no condemnation. Your sin is atoned for. You are clean. You are forgiven. You are loved. So welcome into the overwhelming delight of my presence. Make yourself at home. Isn't that great? What a Savior. What a kind and gracious God that we have. The gospel comes with a house key. Now, I get that idea from a book by the same name by Rosaria Butterfield. It's a book about how the gospel should cause us to practice radically ordinary hospitality. It's an excellent book. I'd recommend you read it. But in it, Rosaria says this, Jesus dines with sinners not because sin is no big deal. Jesus dines with sinners not because he expects us to go on sinning. Jesus dines with sinners not because he knows that some of us are just more prone to certain sins than others, and he gives us a free pass when our inclinations lead us into sin. Jesus dines with sinners so that he can get close enough to touch us and so that he can participate in the intimacy of table fellowship as a healer and a helper. Jesus comes to change us, to transform us, so that after we have dined with Jesus... We want Jesus more than the sin that beckons our fidelity. Jesus comes to us not to make us comfortable with our sin. He comes to rescue us from our enslaving sin. He comes to help and to heal us. So please understand that when I speak of God's overwhelming love all the time, and when I preach the gospel week in and week out, and when I speak of his forgiveness all the time, I am not saying that obedience doesn't matter. I am not saying that just because you are forgiven, you can now live any way you want. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the the great British preacher, or Welsh preacher, said, if you're not accused of being an antinomian, meaning God's law doesn't apply to us, you don't have to be obedient. If you're not accused of being an antinomian, when you speak about the gospel, then you're probably not speaking the gospel at all. The reason I preach about God's love and forgiveness and kindness all the time is because that is precisely what will make you want to kill sin. 
it will make you want to obey. It will make you want Jesus more than the sin that beckons your fidelity. As Paul said in Romans 2.4, what leads us to repentance? It's God's kindness. That's why I'm beating the same gospel drum week after week. So that you will hate sin and run to Jesus and love him and want him more than the sin that beckons your fidelity. As the Puritan uh, Walter Marshall said, God does not drive you along with whips and terrors or by the rod of the schoolmaster of the law. Rather, he leads you and draws you to walk in his ways by pleasant attractions. The love of Christ is the greatest and most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living. God woos us to obedience. He's not screaming at us and saying, get in line. He woos us with his love. He woos his children so that our hearts are changed and we want to be obedient. When we speak of God's love and forgiveness and kindness all the time, that is precisely what will cause us to repent of our sin. And that's exactly what called, caused Old Testament disciples to repent too. It was God's kindness as seen at the temple. The fact that Yahweh made a way possible for sinners to enjoy his presence is what caused a true disciple to repent. As we saw last week, that's the point of the temple that Solomon is building. God can't get close enough to his people. He wants to be with us. He invites sinners into his presence. Now, of course, we can't come on our own. We only come through substitutionary atonement. We only come by shed blood. In both the Old and New Covenants, we have to come to God by the blood of another because God is holy. We can't just traipse into his presence on our own righteousness. And even though Solomon and company could approach God, there were still parts of the temple that they could not get inside to see with their own eyes. The insides of the temple were off limits to the average worshiper. Only priests were allowed on the inside, and only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he only went in one day out of every year, the Day of Atonement. And that's what we'll see in 1 Kings chapter 6 today. Solomon is going to give us a tour of the insides of the temple that was off limits to the average Israelite. The author of 1 Kings is giving us a look into Yahweh's house, the Lord's house. The temple that Solomon is building will be the place where generations of Israelites will worship the Lord. No more Ark of the Covenant inside of a tent in Jerusalem while the Mosaic Tabernacle is about six miles away. No more worshiping Yahweh, worshiping the Lord in two different places. The temple that Solomon is building, that we've been reading about, will be the centralized sanctuary that Israelites have dreamed of for centuries. And so here in 1 Kings chapter 6, and turn there in your Bibles now if you haven't, here in 1 Kings 6, the Lord, Yahweh, that's his covenant name in Hebrew, Yahweh now has a new address, a local address. He lives on a street 
in a city, in a zip code in Jerusalem. Yahweh has moved into a neighborhood and he has invited people over for a housewarming party. In 1 Kings chapter 6, the Lord is speaking to his people through cubits and recessed window frames and cherubim. What were cherubim? Cherubim were these creatures that had the faces of men with a beard like a hipster and the body of a lion or a bull and the wings of an eagle. Now, who does that? Who speaks to his people through these weird creatures? Yahweh does. Why? Because he's not boring. God is not boring. God could have just said, come on in, y'all are welcome. Instead, he speaks through wood and flowers and gold and palm trees and lots and lots of statues and pictures of creatures with the faces of men and a beard like a hipster who have the body of a lion and wings like an eagle. 1 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So chapter 6 of 1 Kings begins, if you notice, with this big injection of theology. It may not strike the modern reader, but this verse would have leapt leapt off the pages to an Israelite. Why? Because verse 1 goes all the way back into Israel's past to that grand moment in her history, the exodus from Egypt. It has been some 480 years since that great event where Moses led the nation of Israel out of the clutches of Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt. And we know from Exodus 12 that Israel had been living in slavery in Egypt for 430 years by the time Yahweh delivered them. So here in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 6, we have two momentous occasions. We have the deliverance of the people from 430 years of bondage in Egypt, and then the subsequent 480 years until the beginning of the building of the temple for Yahweh. So here we see not only Yahweh saving his people, but now he is settling them in the land and giving them rest from their enemies as he promised. This is redemptive history, and if you add it up, it has taken almost 1,000 years to accomplish. Now, think about that. After 430 years of slavery, we have 480 years of waiting waiting on enemies to be destroyed, waiting for rest to be given, 480 years of waiting until construction finally begins in the neighborhood where Yahweh will place his name and settle into his new house. It was 1,000 years in the making, but it finally arrived. And if you were an Israelite, you could mark it on your kitchen calendar, as verse 1 says. It happened in the fourth year of Solomon's reign during the second month. Hmm. So what is this seemingly throwaway verse teaching us about our God? It's teaching us that Jesus is in no hurry. 
Oh, we want him to be, right? We want Jesus to be in a hurry. We want Jesus to fill in his calendar after checking with our calendars, right? We want the instant rice microwave presto God at our disposal. Or at least I do. But he's in no hurry. His kingdom will get established in his time. And sometimes you have to wait 1,000 years for it. Literally and figuratively. And as we'll see later in verse 38, it took Solomon seven years to build this temple. Jesus is rarely in a hurry. He's quite patient. But before we look at verse 2, let me show you a few pictures of some cherubim, those creatures with the faces of men, and they had a hipster beard and the body of a lion or a bull and the wings of eagles. The Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and all the other cultures in the ancient Near East all crafted these same creatures. They were a symbol of power. Cherubim had the face of a man with this really nice, perfect, cool hipster beard and and the body of a lion or a bull, and they had wings, and they were a symbol of power in the ancient Near East. And so why are all of these cherubim in the temple that Solomon is building for the Lord? I mean, they are all over the place. Why are they on the curtains and on the walls and on the doors and two giant ones standing next to the Ark of the Covenant and then two cherubim on top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant? Why are they there and what are they telling us? Well, the use of so many cherubim in ancient Israelite worship was to indicate that immediate access to the presence of God was restricted. Other cultures used cherubim and used them as a means of protection around the gods that other cultures worshipped. Obviously, God doesn't need any protecting, but they were put there to remind sinners that immediate access to the presence of God was restricted. It reminded Israel that God's presence was guarded, that people couldn't just wander. They couldn't just mosey into God's presence without mediation. And yet these weird creatures are inviting sinners into God's presence to come with joyful trembling. And that's what worship is. It's joyful trembling. And that's what makes the gospel such good news. Because of Jesus, our mediator, our high priest, we, as God's children, now have access to God's presence. And we can come boldly and openly and transparently and honestly and confidently to his throne of mercy and grace. We are welcome in God's house because of Jesus. So let's head into God's house that Solomon was building. As I read verses 2 through 10, we're going to put up a picture of the temple so you can see what it is that I'm describing, or you can follow along with me in the text. But the picture we're going to show is actually a cutout so that you can actually see inside of the temple. And if you look closely into the Holy of Holies, you can catch a glimpse of those hipster-bearded cherubim who guarded the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 2. 
The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now, don't check out on Solomon here. I know this may seem a little boring, but God has recorded this portion of his word, and we would do well to hear it. Cubits matter to God. Windows with recessed frames matter to God. But why all of the detail? Who cares if the windows had recessed frames? Or that there were side chambers wrapped around the building? Or that the ceiling was made of cedar? Or that the third storage, third story storage room on the far left of the picture there, who cares that it was a little bit wider than the second story or the first level storage room? All of this seemingly boring construction project is telling us that the gospel comes with a house key. It's a picture of God's heart. His openness and welcome is for anyone, no matter what you've done. It's welcome for anyone who comes with the empty hands of faith to find rest in Christ. You may be thinking that God won't receive you this morning, that you're too messed up. You might not even have a church background. This might be your very first time in church today. So maybe you're feeling a little awkward in church. Maybe you think you don't belong. But God wants to tell you today, you're welcome here. And so turn from your sin Turn from living for you. Repent. That just means to change your mind about you. Change your mind about God. Turn and come with the empty hands of faith and find forgiveness and find rest in Christ alone. Jesus says to you today, you are welcome here. And that's what he's saying as we read these verses about cubits and cherubim and cedar. Far from being a boring passage, Jesus is offering us a key to his front door. This is the way that God works. He requires of us nothing but to open the empty hands of faith and receive his free gift of grace, receive his righteousness. He just says to us, here I am, with arms wide open to all who would receive him. Anyone may welcome him because he welcomes any sinner who will reach out and take his hand. He's still saying it today, even right now. Here I am. And it's what he's saying to you.
right now. But notice in verse 7, we get this brief description about the work site. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Now, what does this mean? It's not a normal work site with construction workers whistling at pretty girls as they walk by. It means that this was not like a typical work site. In fact, it was a pretty quiet work site. There's no sound of hammer or axe or any power tools at the site. Only the sound of stones being put in place, stones which were cut and handcrafted at the quarry. Now, why? I think it's a demonstration to the people that this was not just another HGTV construction project. This place was special. The God of the universe was going to be living here. And so there's this sense of the holiness of the Lord even as they put the stones in place. Therefore, the stones had to be cut precisely and accurately at the rock quarry, and then they were delivered and they were set up. And the precision required in this would be staggering. No mistakes could be fixed on site. And what did that signal to the workers and signal to the nation of Israel? That Yahweh is special, that the Lord is unique. He is Holy, he is set apart. And that's what the word holy means. It means to be set apart. It means to be different. When we say that God is holy, we say, we're saying, you are different from us. And then we could probably list a thousand reasons why. Because he's very different from us. And so even the way the temple was constructed, it was designed to point out the splendor and the uniqueness And the holiness of the Lord. And then one day, Yahweh showed up to the work site to speak with Solomon. Look at verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So an intrusion from God in the middle of the construction project signaled priorities. I think that's what's happening here in verses 11 through 13. Yahweh has intruded Solomon's building efforts to remind him of his priorities. Obedience to the Lord. Remember, Solomon as the new king was to be the moral compass of the nation. He had to be obedient or it would be catastrophic for the nation. And the nation too had to be obedient as well. They were Yahweh's people. If they failed to see this priority then they would, wouldn't have a temple anymore, or they would, but it would just be a useless building is all it would be. And we know from the books of First and Second Kings that this is exactly what happened. The nation turned away and eventually ended up as slaves in Babylon, and the temple was destroyed. But don't miss the gospel here in verse 13. The Lord says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. The Lord appears to Solomon to remind him in the middle of a very long seven-year construction project why he is doing what he is doing. Solomon is building a place where sinners could meet with God. 
where God could be with his people, where they could gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, where they could hear that their sins are forgiven, where their hearts would melt into exuberant joy. You may be bored when you read this chapter. I may be bored when I read this chapter. But whatever you do when you read this chapter, get tangled up in, get hung up on those two words in verse 13, my people. Those two words, my people, should startle you. Those two words should shock you because God is holy. That's what all the cherubim are telling you. God is holy. You just can't mosey into his presence because you're a sinner. And yet God still insists on having a people. And the only people that he can work with are sinners and failures like us. Wow. First Kings 6 isn't boring. Somehow the Lord prefers redeeming people like us. And then he gets real possessive and he refers to us as my people. What sweet words. What wonderful news. The holy God of the universe has a people. God has a people that he has redeemed out of this wicked population, out of this darkness. My people. What sweet, sweet words. And that's why this phrase gets repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the big idea of the Bible. If somebody asks you what the Bible is about, say, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the core of the gospel. I will be your God and you will be my people. Old Testament scholar Alec Motier said this, The whole Bible is bound together around the single theme, I will be your God and you will be my people. The same way of salvation is found right throughout the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people is just another way of saying that God welcomes you into his house that he says to you right now, Mi casa es su casa. It's another way of saying that the gospel comes with a house key. And the author of 1 Kings will use that key to move from the outside of the temple to the insides of the temple in verses 14 through 36. So again, allow me to let you gawk at these bearded lion men statues as I read the next section. Zoomed in a little bit closer, you can see the cherubim there guarding the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. 
And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and the other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Now, you may have thought that took me seven years to read 22 verses. It may sound boring, but even the way the author describes the temple highlights the theology that's found here. Notice that the author began with the outside of the temple in verses 2 through 10, and then he moves to the inside of the temple in verses 14 through 36. So we move from the outside of the temple all the way into the Holy of Holies. That's intentional. 22 verses on the inside of the temple with just 8 verses for the outside. Why? Why all the detail on the inside of the temple? Why spill all of this ink? about the inside of the temple. Well, this chapter may be a little boring to us, but put yourself in the shoes of an average Israelite back then. The average Israelite would never see the insides of the temple, ever. They had no idea what was inside there unless it was written down or told to them. Only the priests were allowed inside. So these verses here that we seem, that seem kind of boring to us are like an audio tour that you might get in an art museum. So imagine Joe Israelite with headphones on and he presses play on the Walkman and he goes on this journey in his mind to see the insides of the sanctuary. He gets to use his imagination and see the beauty and the splendor of the Lord. And he even gets to hear what it was like inside the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the two cherubim are, the gigantic cherubim. No one could go in there except the high priest, and he only went in once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
The average worshiper gets to see in their mind what only the priests got to see. The average Israelite worshiper got a house key. They got a description of the splendor and uniqueness and holiness of Yahweh. This is a picture of grace. Yahweh reveals the inside of the temple for the average Israelite. They get a glimpse into his holiness. Richard Nelson said that this audio tour inside the temple is giving the reader a chance to gawk at the cherubim inside the Holy of Holies. And now think of the original audience of 1 Kings. Most of them had never even seen the temple. Most were born in exile in Babylon. A few of them returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. And what happened there? They wept because the temple was destroyed. They remembered seeing the beauty of this temple. But the original audience, most of them, had never seen it. And they're getting to see it as First and Second Kings was written to them in exile. And then you can't help but notice that magic word that appears six times in three verses and 11 times total. Gold. Gold, gold, gold. But why all the gold? Why all the bling bling? To reflect the splendor of Yahweh. The gold points to Yahweh's glory. The gold should cause us to slow down enough to be flabbergasted that this infinitely glorious God stoops down to commune with us, with failures like us, with people who just can't seem to get their act together even though they've been in church for 40 years. We should be flabbergasted that he has a people and he invites them and welcomes them into his presence, that he welcomes you You did things this past week that were terrible. You thought things about people that if we put it on the screen right now, you'd never show your face here again. You said things to people. You did things this past week that you were utterly ashamed of. And if we put it up there, you'd disappear from the Central Coast. What happened to that one guy? Oh, yeah, we put his sins up on the screen. Don't blame the dude for not coming back. And yet those things that you did this week, And the sinful motives that were undergirding everything that you were thinking, saying, and doing this week. God says to you, you can come into my presence. We should be flabbergasted that this infinitely glorious and holy God cannot get close enough to us. Not because we're special, because we're not. We're sinners. He just happens to love sinners. And wants to communicate his goodness to them. That's why God lived in the temple. Because he wanted to be close to his people. Because he loves being close to his people. Because Jesus can't stay away from sinners. And yet we struggle to believe that even as Christians, don't we? We struggle to believe that God wants to be with us. Listen, Jesus wanted to be with his people so bad that he came up with a way that would satisfy his justice against our sin and yet still allow sinners to get close to him. 
Sinners can draw near to the Lord, draw near to his holiness because he made a way possible through his life, death, and resurrection. You can walk past the cherubim to see God and to enjoy God. And the cherubim and all these flowers and all these trees are meant to remind us of something else. The Garden of Eden. We tend to think of angels the way we think of them, chubby little kids with wings and, you know, a bow and arrow, right? These are cherubim. They were a symbol of power. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, what guarded the way back to the tree of life? The cherubim did. So 1 Kings 6 is telling us that the way to God is open again. Yes, there are cherubim there because God is holy. But sinners can come by a mediator, by blood. They can come through substitutionary atonement. God's presence in the temple, in the midst of his covenant people, was the heart of this covenant relationship. But the visible symbol of God's presence in the midst of his people is no longer the temple, nor is it the church building. Rather, it's Jesus Christ himself as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus physically represented the triune God's presence in the midst of his people. And now that Jesus has ascended to heaven and poured out his spirit upon the church, God's presence is represented in the world by us, his people, the church. We are his people. And as the body of Christ, the church is the new temple made up of Jews and Gentiles being built together as a holy dwelling place for God. And now we as the church are called to invite others to come and know and enjoy God. Not to just keep this good news for ourselves, but to go tell others. We can tell them. The gospel comes with the house key. Ray Ortland said this, every church should put a notice on its front door. All face-saving moralists take warning. Within these doors, your chilly pride is in danger of melting into exuberant joy. Enter at your own risk, but all sinners depressed with guilt are welcome. Christianity throbs with holy joy for bad people. God made it that way. I almost put that sign up on every door in the church, 22 doors, but I'm still recovering from the time change. And so I just couldn't get up this morning. I was going to put that sign on every door so that you saw it as you walked in. But I'm getting old. But that's the message we need to take to the Central Coast, to our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and fellow students. We and you, Christian are called to spread the good news of Jesus so that lost people's chilly pride would melt into exuberant joy when they hear about Jesus. Christianity throbs with holy joy for bad people. That's the message that the Central Coast desperately needs to hear. And that's what 1 Kings 6 is all about. 1 Kings 6 should not bore you. It should cause you to be flabbergasted that a holy God throbs with holy joy for bad people. Bad people like you and bad people like me. But we don't think of ourselves as that bad sometimes, do we? Or even if we do, we still try to earn our way back into his presence, don't we? 
Jerry Bridges said, we all, having trusted Christ alone for our salvation, have a tendency to revert to a performance-based relationship with God. We know we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but we assume we earn God's acceptance and blessings in our daily lives by our performance. If you think that way, then you have misunderstood 1 Kings chapter 6. If you live with this vague sense of God's disapproval of you, you have misunderstood 1 Kings chapter 6. If you feel like you can't bring your needs to God immediately after you have failed him, you have misunderstood what 1 Kings chapter 6 is all about. Or if you feel you deserve an answer to a prayer because you've been faithful with your quiet times, then you don't understand what 1 Kings chapter 6 is about. Maybe you assume that you've sinned so many times that you've used up your credit of forgiveness. You don't understand grace and you don't understand what 1 Kings chapter 6 is about. If you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in God's eyes, you don't understand his grace and you don't understand what 1 Kings chapter 6 is trying to tell you. It's not a boring passage. If you feel that the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time, then you don't understand 1 Kings chapter 6. Do you believe it today? Do you believe the gospel today? Do you feel it in your heart, in your bones? What would your life look like if you believed it? I mean, really believe the good news of the gospel. What would your life look like? What would your life look like if you really believed that God's heart throbs for you? What would your life be like if you really knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that you were loved by God and there was nothing that you could ever do to spoil that reality? What if you really believed that you are completely loved and completely welcomed and completely forgiven no matter what. What if you read 1 Kings chapter 6 and came away believing that you are invited to live your whole life under the smile of God? What if you read 1 Kings 6 about all those weird half-man, half-lion creatures with wings and hipster beards and you believed that you have been invited by God to live the entirety of your life under the smile of God. I dare you to go for it. And you just might find your chilly pride melting into exuberant joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a merciful and gracious God you are. You are holy, you're set apart, you're different from us. You're infinitely glorious, Father. And you welcome people like us into your presence. It is flabbergasting. We want to exact revenge on people who hurt us and harm us. We want to keep our distance from people 
who irritate us and who have wronged us. And yet you, holy God, who have been offended by our sin, welcome us into your presence because of what your son Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. How wonderful it is what he did for us to satisfy your justice so that we would feel free in your presence and so that we could live the entirety of our lives under your smile. Would you help us to do that as individuals and as families and as a church? And would you help us to take this good news to the Central Coast for your glory and for our exuberant joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.